Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It certainly is great to be back on the air, but ironically I can say that it's great to be back on the air when it was least expected. Now I know that might sound a little odd, but in actuality I probably was under the assumption that I might not have been on the air with you guys next until, say, tomorrow at, at the earliest, but it just so happens that um, I have enough time uh, to where I'm able to squeeze in a podcast segment. Um, that's never a bad thing because, you know, time is a valuable commodity. It's not something that should be taken for granted in all aspects of life. But hey, if I figured that I have uh, enough time to be able to um, squeeze in a podcast segment, why not take advantage of it? So here we are, um, discussing uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the frontier rebels who challenged America's uh, newfound sovereignty by William, Ho by William Hoagland. In this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn um, a great deal of information about um, not only just western Pennsylvania, but we're going to learn some information about um, a tax collector. We're going to learn about... Um, a couple of individuals uh, who have been um, impacted by the um, tax that the uh, government has imposed uh, upon whiskey. Uh, we're also going to learn about an individual um, whom was not originally from uh, the frontier land of western Pennsylvania, but it just so happens that he is an individual um, whom has um, made his way into western Pennsylvania about Oh, I'd say maybe 10 years at most prior to when uh, the first signs of trouble uh, began along the frontier in the early years of the young um, American Republic. So I, I will say that we do have a lot of ground to cover. And I know that many of you probably are, are wondering, how many pages does Kirk get in or work in for a podcast? I probably have uh, addressed this question before, but for those of you who are new to my podcasts and are curious to know just how many pages I try to fit in per um, episode segment, on average it's about five. There have been a few instances where it, had, where it has gone to six. That's usually the cutoff. It has to be, given that I have uh, 60 minutes to podcast. Anything over six pages is really pushing it. So the maximum overall has been about five pages, but there are times when it gets to five and a half and six pages. Well, it just so happens that this uh, podcast segment covers about five and a half pages of notes taken. Why so much? Well, in order to uh, really um, give you all, as to give all of you, my listeners, as accurate of a story, Information does need to be researched. Information, it's one thing to gather the information, but it's also important to go about addressing it properly. So this way, it's not just so much fact sharing, it's more about us being in the shoes of those whom are, whom are living along the frontiers, uh, along the frontier land of western Pennsylvania, and also being in the shoes of those whom are on the opposite side, being government officials, whom are trying to collect revenue, even if it means going up against those whom uh, display hostility towards this new uh, tax 
not just a new tax, but the first official tax on an American uh, good, not just an American good, but a domestic American good. It's one thing to obtain a good, but there is a difference between obtaining something that's made domestically versus buying something that that comes 3,000 miles across the ocean, say, being that of uh, England. So let's get prepared uh, for uh, this next segment to the Whiskey Rebellion. We have a lot of ground to cover, so it, so I would say it's uh, time to get the show on the road. Our leadoff question is the following. Who exactly is Hugh Henry Brackenridge? And his name will be mentioned quite a bit, not just in this podcast segment, but in other uh, podcast segments uh, down the road. I didn't know anything about Hugh Henry Brackenridge until I read this book. And I'm sure that that this person's name is probably one that would not have come across many of your all's um, top five um, peoples in terms of uh, individuals of uh, significant uh, historical importance. So for starters, uh, Mr. Brackenridge had gone on to become one of the most well-educated individuals residing in Pittsburgh during its early years as a town, beginning around 1781, the year he officially arrived. And what do you know? When I think of 1781, the first thing that comes to my mind is the siege of Yorktown. But believe it or not, Pittsburgh, folks, it's not a city in 1781, but it's a town. Prior to 1781, um, at age 19, um, Mr. Brackenridge attended the College of New Jersey. I think it's good that we learn a little bit more background information on Hugh Henry Brackenridge. But when he was around 19 years of age, he uh, enrolled at the College of New Jersey, which we now refer to as Princeton University, where he and fellow uh, future forefather uh, James Madison established the American Whig Society. It was also at the College of New Jersey that um, Hugh Brackenridge spent extra time studying divinity, or what we call studying theology. It should be uh, fair to point out that in the early years of um, collegiate institutions of higher learning, around the time uh, Mr. Brackenridge attends school, um, or college, I should say, there are only about nine um, American uh, colleges but there's only one in the South, and that being William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. The other schools are up north. So you've got like the College of New Jersey being Princeton. You have Yale, Harvard, or I, maybe I shouldn't say Harvard. I, I probably should say Harvard. I'm not a New Englander, but that's what uh, most, most, if not most, of all New Englanders call it Harvard. So you've got your Harvard, your Yale. Uh, Dartmouth, uh, College of New Jersey, you have William and Mary, you've got uh, King's College, which goes on to become uh, Columbia University, you have uh, Penn University, you've got um, another school in New Jersey, and then there, I'm not sure if Brown University has been established by this point in time, but, but in all, there's only about nine uh, colleges in America, and what's what I should also point out is that, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, Mr. Brackenridge studied uh, divinity. All of the colleges at this time 
before and after the American Revolutionary War, one of the big areas of study is that of divinity or theology. You know, it, it is important for uh, many of these colleges to have a strong affiliation with church and state. So even though um, Mr. Brackenridge is at the College of New Jersey, and the College of New Jersey does promote more uh, religious uh, toleration than, say, William & Mary, given that William & Mary is affiliated at this time with the uh, Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England, um, for the College of New Jersey, while, yes, that institution is one based on greater religious diversity, it is also uh, one that does uh, value uh, the emphasis and importance behind um, behind um, educating those who want to go into uh, the clergy, the, the profession of the clergy. It also should be pointed out that Mr. Brackenridge um, also served as a chaplain to George Washington's army during the Revolutionary War. So um, it did pay for Mr. Brackenridge to s spend a good deal of time studying divinity, given that he uh, went on to serve as a chaplain in Washington's army during the Revolutionary War. Now, by the age of 30, uh, Hugh Brackenridge um, decides to go about studying law under Samuel Chase's tutelage. Samuel Chase would go on to become a signer to the uh, United States uh, Constitution. And around the age of 32, uh, Mr. Brackenridge was admitted to the bar. So, Mr. Brackenridge, he was born in 1748. That means he's about five years younger than, you know, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but uh, Mr. Brackenridge, uh, around 1780, the time that he was admitted to the bar, is 32 years of age. Although he did try his best to be successful at being a lawyer, and he practiced law in Philadelphia, but he came to the realization that he simply could not compete with men who had come before him, men whom established um, legendary status, men whom established um, prominence to where Mr. Brackenridge himself knew that he could not attain the same level of status as, say, a Mr. Benjamin Franklin or let alone even perhaps a Mr. Thomas Paine, whom spent many of uh, years in uh, Philadelphia. Just to name a few of the uh, well-known uh, forefathers. So for uh, Mr. Brackenridge, he eventually comes to the realization that, okay, I can't compete in Philadelphia. So he's, he decides to go westward. So he goes westward towards the frontier land past the Appalachian Mountains. Is it fair to say that Mr. Brackenridge could be going to where we now know as Pittsburgh? I mean, after all, he, uh, he came to Pittsburgh in 1781. So, and, and Pittsburgh is west of the Appalachians, am I correct? Yes. Pittsburgh is right, pretty much right smack dab along the Pennsylvania-Ohio line, correct? Yes. How many uh, people lived in Pittsburgh around 1781, being the same year of Mr. Brackenridge's arrival? Uh, the number range, folks, is between 300 and 600. Does anybody want to take a guess? The answer is 400. 
400 people, folks, were living in Pittsburgh around 1781, being the same year of Mr. Brackenridge's arrival. The majority of Pittsburgh's people lived primarily in log houses. It would be very fair to say that Pittsburgh was a very remote town. It's also fair to say that Pittsburgh was the furthest westernmost town in um, America going into 1781. People, yes, people lived primarily in log houses. It's Pittsburgh's very remote. It's well cut off from cities along the coast, being those cities east of the Alleghenies like Philadelphia. It might be fair to say that if you wanted to go from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, it's going to definitely take you more than a week's time. For all we know, it might take you two weeks at most to get from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh if the weather is right. In other words, if it's not raining like cats and dogs. 1791, though, ten years later, Pittsburgh's population goes from 400 in 1781 to now being that of a thousand people come 1791 living in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, folks, is located at the point, or the junction, I should say, uh, where the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers meet together by forming the Ohio River. This might sound a little off track, but I know many of you would know this. For those of you who are listening and reside in western Pennsylvania, or have family that lives in western Pennsylvania. You know, the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, used to play at a, at a football stadium from 1970 to 2000, known as Three Rivers Stadium. Why Three Rivers Stadium? Well, it makes practical sense. The Monongahela, the Allegheny, and the Ohio Rivers. The Monongahela and the Allegheny meeting together by forming by forming uh, the Ohio River. You know, they come together to meet at the, um, at the junction of where the Ohio River flows into uh, Pittsburgh. So it makes sense why it's called, why it was called Three Rivers Stadium. And by the way, uh, for those of you who are listening who are Steelers fans, I'm also a, an ardent Steelers fan myself too, and so is my wife. So, um, for those of you living in Pittsburgh listening, uh, this is for you. That was for you guys. So, well before um, Hugh Brackenridge's arrival in 1781, Pittsburgh got its official name in 1758 during the height of the Seven Years' War, or what we know as the French and Indian War. British General John Forbes named Pittsburgh in honor of British statesman William Pitt. William Pitt was the first Earl of Chatham. Interesting, there is a county in Virginia right along the Virginia-North Carolina line in what we know is uh, Southside Virginia called Pittsylvania County. It's fair to say that there probably is a connection with that of William Pitt. And there is a place in Virginia, in Southside Virginia, called Chatham, Virginia. C-H-A-T-H-A-M, William Pitt being the first Earl of Chatham. And Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, named after William Pitt, it all just meshes in very well 
Now, by the 1790s, Pittsburgh is home to uh, such uh, businesses as uh, brickworking and ironmaking, just to name a few um, what we might think of as uh, industrial uh, practices that are uh, thriving in this westernmost town of the young American um, republic. Now, were Europeans, primarily uh, British and French peoples, interested in establishing settlements or posts along western Pennsylvania's frontier lands for some lengthy period of time? Yes. The Europeans uh, were very um, interested when it came to establishing settlements or posts most notably for commercial trading purposes, given the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers flowed into Pittsburgh where they, where they were joined by the Ohio River. However, during the 1750s, the only known Europeans whom resided in western Pennsylvania were traders stationed along the forks of the Ohio, whom either worked for the French, British, and provincial companies and governments and what i be what i mean by provincial here folks is province of a country or um, empire the traders in return uh, bought indian goods like beaver pelts to selling european goods to indians so it's fair to say that the indians had a uh, greater control over the uh, market Whereas the European traders, you know, they were just living in average homes, which I guess was fine by them. But the, uh, but the group of people that are benefiting the most are the Indians. Now, uh, prior to the 1750s, many uh, white people did venture west, knowing willingly they were in violation of royal proclamations. Another word for proclamation is like a declaration, uh, a written declaration that, you know, authorizes uh, the use of um, land acquisition or author a declaration uh, prohibiting uh, the expansion of going somewhere west along a particular uh, boundary line, uh, for example. So, so prior to the 1750s, we know that many white people did venture west, knowing willingly they were in violation of royal proclamations, which had set aside land for Indians. Most notably, Indian um, tribal groups living along the western frontiers. But I should point out, too, that um, while, yes, many uh, white people did venture west, knowing that it was not only in violation of royal proclamations, they did so by taking matters into their own hands by partaking in raids against Indians to also being attacked by Indians in return. So for many of these um, settlers, they did venture west, knowing that they were doing so against their own will, but they were doing it at their own expense, and they, it, it sounded as though maybe they were willing to die for what they believed in was a noteworthy cause, knowing what they were going up against. You know, it's one thing to venture west, but knowing that you're, you are going to be um, encountered by um, 
a hostile group of peoples whom deem you, being the European settlers, as invasive species um, upon their native, um, upon their ancestral native lands. Before 1758, no talks or plans of building a town along the Ohio River ever came up. I find that, you know, I just find that interesting. I mean, who would have ever thought that there would be a town around 1758 and just after that would be um, established? Could it be fair to say that maybe establishing Pittsburgh was needed for uh, security reasons, given that it was the most, given it was the furthest um, point uh, west of the Appalachians in terms of the furthest uh, western town in the young American Republic? Uh, perhaps so. What became the first structure representing the earliest sign of white authority along the forks of the Ohio? So think about it, folks. And the reason why I'm mentioning that term terminology is because, you know, prior to um, prior to the 1750s, there really had not been any reason for white settlers to go further west, although they knew that there was um, that there were great um, sources of abundant. Um, of abundant materials, uh, most notably being land. But as, um, how do I say it? But as we are um, now being engaged in a war, there does need to be perhaps um, some necessary means of defense to protect us against um, not only with regards to um, French um, encroachment, but that of Indian encroachment. So what becomes the first structure representing the earliest sign of white authority along the forks of the Ohio? Fort Pitt. Fort Pitt was home to a British army. The post itself was located where the Monongahela and Allegheny rivers met. And Fort Pitt was not far from Fort Duquesne, being the French fort built in 1754. So whenever you think of... Duquesne, Pennsylvania, it's right on the outskirts of uh, Pittsburgh, and also being that of uh, Fort Duquesne. Fort Pitt, believe it or not, was, um, was part of no town or province, meaning the British military lacked any jurisdiction over who had official rights to the land surrounding the structure. The fort's walls alone served as a type of supply and support system for British troops. 1763, the French and Indian War ends with the British emerging victorious under the Royal Declaration. King George III marked the official line at the top of the Appalachian Mountains, reserving all lands west for Indians and prohibiting future white settlements. Could it be fair to say that men like uh, George Washington had already acquired land or ha had an interest in the Ohio Territory well before uh, the Seven Years' War came to an end? Yes. 
Is it fair to say that maybe men like George Washington had been promised by his own government that his lands would be looked after along the Ohio Territory? Whatever holdings he claimed to would be, um, would be protected to where they would be out of Indian hands, perhaps. Why, why all of a sudden this change? Well, for one, you know, the British had defeated the French, obviously. And the French have to give up their lands along the Ohio Territory, including um, the Great Lakes around Lake Erie and uh, Ontario. So therefore, because the French have to give up all these lands... The French are also losing their alliances with countless Indian tribes um, along the um, Ohio um, Valley Territory. So now that the British have taken over, the British have to establish alliances. And by establishing alliances, that also means that you've got to protect those whom are now going to become your new trading partners or, your, or just your partners in general being that of uh, the Indians, most notably tribes like the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Pontiac, uh, just to name a few uh, powerful tribes um, along the Ohio Valley frontier. And if you want, if you want to maintain good relations with these Indians, or with Indian tribes in general along the Ohio Valley, who do you have to keep out of the way? White settlers. And, there, and therefore, you have to draw a line, and that is no, no uh, westward expansion of white settlers west of the Appalachians. What lies west of the Appalachian, folks? Pittsburgh. And then what we now know is Ohio. So really, in a sense, it is a slap in the face to America's, um, to Britain's uh, subjects, being the 13 colonies, but most notably to those whom have um, interest in uh, land holdings along the uh, frontier of the Ohio Valley um, area, most notably like George Washington. Other than uh, Pennsylvania claiming forks of the Ohio, whom else claimed a stake in the region? Virginia. Makes practical sense, folks, because Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. Remember, her land holdings go into um, Ohio. We could even say they go into part of western Pennsylvania, what we know as Pittsburgh. We've got Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, we're going, Virginia's going all the way into the Great Lakes. So <laughs> it is fair to say that Virginia has a legal, um, a valid legal right to be claiming um, territory that that uh, leaders in uh, the House of Burgesses um, believe is theirs. Virginia, like Pennsylvania, Virginia's territory extended into present-day western Pennsylvania, including Ohio. The new settlers came westward from the south and the east, being Scots-Irish whom by 1781, the year of Hugh Henry Brackenridge's arrival, made up a large number behind uh, western Pennsylvania frontier population. And to make things complicated for Virginia and Pennsylvania, each of these two states established counties in the same territory 
including each state undercutting the other's prices that made collecting taxes very difficult, to seeing militias from both states engage in skirmishes over disputed territory that resembled uh, actual warfare. Isn't this what uh, will eventually lead George Washington to come to a realization later on down the road that if states are going to war against each other, this could spell anarchy? To me, it already kind of has the early roots of anarchy. 1771, four years before shots were fired at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, independence movement already had taken root amongst the settlers living along the forks of the Ohio. Groups of people whom claimed first dibs, or what we call uh, rights, to western frontier lands began peacefully removing Pennsylvania governmental deputies out of the region with orders never to return west. To me, that's uh, that says a lot right there. We haven't officially declared our separation from England, and yet we've got uh, people living on the western frontier lands. You know, Britain, uh, Parliament, I should say, tried to make it very clear that there was to be no uh, westward expansion west of the Appalachians, but it seems like there were people already living west of the Appalachians, being uh, white settlers prior to the uh, Royal Pro Proclamation of 1763. So, therefore, it would be very hard to say that Parliament, to me, Parliament would have a very hard time enforcing the measure that says, okay, for those of you who, are, who live west of the Appalachians, it's time for you to pack your bags and get on out. Good luck trying to enforce it for those people, but for uh, for everyone else, they seem to have better success. But that's not to say that there are people, uh, or settlers, I should say, who are finding ways to sneak across and make it over uh, past the um, past the line that um, that uh, prohibited uh, westward expansion past the Appalachians. Did tensions between Virginia and uh, Pennsylvania still exist over the forks of the Ohio by the time Mr. Brackenridge arrived into uh, Pittsburgh come 1781? Yes, those people, regardless of what side they were on, came to calling western Pennsylvania's frontier as West Sylvania. Think about that, folks. West Sylvania. They're referring to um, the whole entire uh, western Pennsylvania frontier, not as a unified Pennsylvania, but their side of the state is going to become West Sylvania. By 1781, those living in what they called West Sylvania also implemented their own constitution, meaning they, meaning there were intentions upon seceding from Pennsylvania altogether. If they're that unhappy with what is going on um, east of the Alleghenies, then these people along the frontier are willing to take matters into their own hands by going as far as implementing their own constitution, their own set of rules. And if that's not enough for them, why not just secede and create what we know as West Sylvania? It never happened, but it should, it should just be a reminder that there were plenty of people along the frontier 
and not necessarily confined to the frontier, who had thought about um, seceding at one time or another. As I said from our prologue, secession itself is nothing new, but it should be reminded that it even happened um, along Pennsylvania's frontier. Mr. Brackenridge's first task upon his um, arrival into uh, Pittsburgh aimed at putting a halt to a new state and secession movement. Ironically, Mr. Brackenridge was a sympathizer and a nationalist, but yet he could identify with frontier people when it came to disliking Indians, native peoples. For one, he, um, un he could uh, totally understand why it was unfair for uh, Parliament to have imposed uh, such unnecessary measures by prohibiting westward expansion west of the Appalachians. But for Mr. Brackenridge, he, along with several other uh, Frontiers people, did not like um, the acts of barbarism that the native peoples had had imposed um, in, in, in terms of imposing their will upon uh, the settlers. Mr. Brackenridge didn't want Indians eliminated altogether, but instead he um, felt it was necessary to convert the Indians into the American, uh, into the greater American culture, including uh, converting them to uh, Christianity. In other words, uh, for Mr. Brackenridge, he doesn't um, really fully understand why many Indian tribes have their worshipped their own worshipped their own gods and you know did things based upon what the. Um, perhaps based upon what the stars in the sky may have guided them to have done, he just felt as though perhaps the Indians needed to get out of their old ways of thinking and become, um, and become uh, acquainted with the greater European culture living in America, given that, there had, given that um, European settlements had uh, grown, had, had expanded to where to where a newer way of life is better compared to um, compared to living a life that is um, that in the eyes of the Europeans just wasn't um, to them 100% acceptable. It doesn't make it right, but uh, but this is the direction that um, that Mr. Brackenridge is going in. How many counties comprised of Western Pennsylvania by 1791? Of course, when I say Western Pennsylvania, and when I've mentioned it um, before, it sounds vague, and because Western Pennsylvania is pretty big. I mean, when I think of, of Western PA, besides Pittsburgh, I think of Erie to the northwest. I think of uh, Johnstown, Altoona, uh, Bedford, uh, Somerset. Um, I also think of like Aliquippa. Uh, which is uh, not far from Erie, uh, Edinburgh, you've got Hermitage, just to name uh, uh, Gerard Butler, just to name um, a handful of uh, cities uh, and towns along the uh, western uh, part of uh, Pennsylvania. 
But how many counties would you say comprised of Western Pennsylvania come 1791? Uh, the answer is five. You've got Bedford, Fayette, and if there's one town in Fayette that will probably probably be mentioned quite a bit is a Union town, Washington, Westmoreland, and the town in Westmoreland uh, being Greensburg and Allegheny. And the city that we know today being a city that uh, encompasses Allegheny County is Pittsburgh. So the five counties, again, are Bedford, Fayette, Washington, Westmoreland, and Allegheny. Now we're going to talk about a, um, a tax collector. I can't imagine being a tax collector and trying to collect revenue from those living along the frontier. I can only imagine what I'd be going up against. I don't think it's good to be nervous, but I couldn't blame uh, tax collectors during this time if they were true if they truly were 100% nervous. Robert Johnson, who would who became the newly appointed collector of federal revenue for Washington and Allegheny counties, meaning that he has uh, Pittsburgh he rode into Pigeon Creek come early September 1791 only to be encountered by roughly 15 to 20 men whom were armed and well disguised. Johnson's mission was to collect the revenue on whiskey or distilled liquor, America's first tax imposed upon a domestic good. Two weeks before that is, two weeks before uh, Robert Johnson's arrival, the Pittsburgh Gazette agreed to a resolution on how tax collectors should be handled. The, the Pittsburgh Gazette um, issued in its uh, write-up that tax collectors were to be seen as public enemies by the greater public. Collectors were simply to, to, to just be frowned upon. It is fair to point out that tax collectors, even in the time when uh, Jesus Christ was living, tax collectors um, were frowned upon then. So this is nothing new, except that what we're dealing with now is a young republic who is desperately trying to find um, a way to secure revenue in paying all outstanding uh, revolutionary war debts but is doing so on a domestic good that is um, a popular one, but yet it's not popular with those along with those people along the frontier who feel that everything that they've labored for is now going to be placed into the hands of the few who will uh, reap in the profits uh, more so than those um, whom worked sweat and blood just to um, just to make their goods not just only to make their goods, but make their goods be a finished good that they, in return, should be reaping the, the rewards on versus the uh, select few or the elite. And I should point out here that the Pittsburgh Gazette was established by uh, none other than Hugh Henry Brackenridge. It still is in existence today, but it's referred to as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And Mr. Brackenridge also was the founder of uh, Pittsburgh University. Now, Robert Johnson uh, did not have a great um, a great um, encounter with um, 
with the men whom were armed and well disguised, being those uh, 15 to 20 men. Robert Johnson, sadly, was stripped of his clothing by the assailants, whom went about tarring and feathering him. Robert Johnson, ironically, did not hail from the east, but was in the mid but while in the midst of getting attacked, he recognized one of the assailants, being a Mr. Daniel Hamilton, whose family resided around Mingo Creek, near the town of Washington. Hamilton's, the Hamiltons were uh, well known, most notably John Hamilton, whom, part, whom partook in uh, the tarring and feathering of uh, Robert Johnson. Now, what made uh, Mingo Creek or what made the Mingo Creek area unique? Well, for one, the creek alone was considered a hub given it surrounded four out of the five western Pennsylvania counties. But secondly, the rivers told two stories, being one where boat works, mills, tanneries, iron furnaces to artisan shops stood uh, nearby the water's edge. Whereas visitors coming from the east were unable to learn that the wilderness before them did in fact consist of neighborhoods and vast, indus and vast industries not too far away. By 1791, uh, most river industries were no longer owned nor operated by settlers living along the frontier. Those whom labored um, did so at the expense of the rich and the few, or I should say the elite. You know, it's one thing to have a job, but if, if you know that you are not um, being able to uh, reap the, um, the fruits of your labor, then what's the point in working? Yes, you have to make an income, you have to make a living, but it would be um, hard to be able to uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor if you know that only a select few could really benefit from your line of work, and that is benefiting from all of your um, income. But, but of course, we have to remind ourselves that those living along the frontier um, are struggling to realize that that this money that's being collected is supposed to go up uh, towards paying off uh, national war, uh, revolutionary war debts. Prior to 1791, had Daniel Hamilton owned a vast amount of land? Uh, the answer, folks, is yes. Mr. Hamilton, uh, Mr. Daniel Hamilton, rather, owned at one time 240 acres. But as time went along, property acreage declined to where he didn't have any land holdings, period. Daniel Hamilton was, in fact, a veteran of the French and Indian War. But over time, uh, land loss or, and property confiscation uh, came in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War ending, come 1763. Whatever land holdings that remained in his hands were eventually given instead to the British Allied Indians, while leaving families like his already on the frontier, unprotected, displaced. It might be fair to say that Daniel's participation in the tarring and feathering of tax collector Robert Johnson brought excitement 
as he saw it as a means behind getting payback from years past, the seven years, the seven years war's aftermath, which had prohibited settlements past the Appalachian Mountains, or in other words, prohibited white settlers from settling um, past the Appalachian Mountains. What took place in Pittsburgh around September the 7th of 1791? A multi-day conference event was being held at the Sign of the Green Tree, a tavern located on the Monongahela River waterfront. The purpose behind this conference uh, centered upon local attitudes against the federal whiskey tax. Mr. Brackenridge was present at the meeting event. The majority in attendance, including Daniel Hamilton, uh, favored sending a petition, and I'm sure most of us know what a petition is. A petition is a formal written request, signed by many, in this case explaining the negative effects to the whiskey tax where the petition would ultimately go to the Pennsylvania Assembly and the U.S. House of Representatives. Not all Frontiers people opposing the federal whiskey tax were poor. A gentleman by the name of uh, David Bradford, uh, who was well-to-do, he hailed from the town of Washington, and it turns out that he had the most elegant house in that town. So we should be reminded, folks, that just because you're opposed to the federal whiskey tax, it doesn't mean that you're poor. It should remind us that, you know, a man like David Bradford, whom has the most elegant house in the town of Washington, that his voice is just as powerful as someone of a lower, of a lower um, tier status along the frontier but yet they have something in common and that they are opposed to the federal government's uh, whiskey, ta whiskey tax and, it, and the negative effects that it has uh, resulted in. And I should point out that Mr. Uh, David Bradford has gone as far as accusing Mr. H Hugh Henry Brackenridge of not having any true compassion for common people, the average Joes, the middling families. However, I would like to think of Mr. Brackenridge as someone who does have compassion for common people. He may have his own way of showing it, but I'm also beginning to wonder if Mr. Brackenridge is someone who is a moderate. In other words, he could go either way on the political spectrum, but at the same time, it could be fair to say that maybe Mr. Brackenridge is not someone who um, favors extremism 100%. So, Mr. Brackenridge did speak at the meeting, but the greatest task before him, here we go, folks, the greatest task before him pertained to making all things reasonable upon those whom remained unreasonable to work with regarding the issue over the federal whiskey tax and other matters where feelings remain skeptical or uncertain. So, for Mr. Brackenridge, he's got to... Um, find a new breaking ground amongst those whom whom are in this mode of being narrow-minded, those whom are still willing to be unreasonable. So in other words, he's got to find a way to break the ice with those people whom need to get out of 
out of the unreasonable mode and into uh, the state of uh, being reasonable, not only over the matter with the federal whiskey tax, but uh, but on other uh, matters that um, that currently um, embody that are currently embodied with uh, skepticism. Whom did uh, Mr. Brackenridge meet during his first trip along western Pennsylvania's frontier lands? And this would have been in 1781. Uh, the person that Mr. Brackenridge met was um, a gentleman named Herman Husband. It's an interesting last name. Herman Husband was an elder man residing above an Allegheny Valley called the Glades. He, was, he would often be referred to as the philosopher of the Allegheny. Herman Husband, I can tell you this much, he is uh, nobody of uh, lower class status. He hailed from a family who originally called Virginia's Tidewater region their home. He went on to become successful in business. He once lived in North Carolina but left while labeled as a wanted fugitive for having promoted violent disturbances on behalf of farmers whom sought protection against authorities working under the crown's behalf. It's amazing to think that he lived somewhere else and escaped, even while he was a wanted fugitive. Herman Husband spent many of years studying the Allegheny Mountain region, which included map drawings measured to scale, along with King and all surrounding geological features. So this is someone who, um, who knows what's going on. He knows the terrain. He knows what's uh, best for, um, for the region. Mr. Brackenridge was impressed by Herman Husband's knowledge of the area surrounding him given it had been his home prior to shots fired round the world in 1775. But in 1781, Mr. Brackenridge's journey west into frontier land made him wonder who was real versus those clinging steadfast behind views considered extremist. In other words, did Mr. Brackenridge really know what he might have been getting himself into when he first arrived in 1781? Yes and no. But at the same time, 10 years later, 1791, at this um, event, um, being that of the um, Green Tree um, event, it's fair to say that maybe uh, Mr. Brackenridge has seen a lot of uh, changes. I should point out that uh, he was um, part of the, uh, he didn't um, attend the uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, but he uh, played uh, a part in, um, ch in helping choose uh, delegates that, um, that, that went on to Philadelphia um, to attend the uh, convention. Mr. Brackenridge obviously hasn't missed out on a whole lot, but for Mr. Brackenridge, the Western frontier has to be one that, um, in order to survive, it can't be about everyone living there all tied to uh, one side of a problem. Yes, he knows that there are going to be individuals whom, 
whom can't be persuaded to think differently, but yet he's got to, for him, he, his calling is to help um, heal a part of uh, Pennsylvania that appears to be wounded. They are hurt by attacks that they feel is robbing them of their uh, livelihoods. But yet he also needs to assure them that they that the government does care about them. But in order for these people to understand that the government does care about them for Mr. Brackenridge, he has to be the one to he has to be the one that has to um that has to take moderate um stances on the issues. Because the last thing that perhaps Mr. Brackenridge doesn't want to see have happen is for a is for a um is for an insurrection to happen, um, an uprising. I don't think Mr. Brackenridge is all about violence. He does care about those along the frontier, but it can't necessarily be all out 100% extremism as a means of solving the problems that that um, that currently uh, occupy uh, the people of uh, of Greater Western Pennsylvania. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this um, topic or uh, or this segment of the Whiskey Rebellion. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn um, a little bit about what's called the curse of pulp. You know, when I think of pulp, you know, think of like paper. But maybe it's fair to say that in this case, we wouldn't be talking about just paper in general. But, you know, it is fair to say that um, a lot of people don't have access to... Um, Hard money, hard money like silver, gold. The majority of people before and during the time of the American Revolutionary War and after, they have what's called a little thing called paper money. Money that's valuable one day but loses its value the next. Of course, if I told you all any more, then there might not be a need to have a, another uh, podcast segment but a podcast segment on, I should say, the uh, curse of pulp. So when I'm on the air again next, that's what we're going to discuss. So thank you for your time as always, and thank you again for being such ardent uh, listeners. Without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but you all are the ones that help make all of this come true. So thank you again, and wherever you all may live, take care for now and stay safe.